Welcome to another edition of On the Road with Legal Talk Network. This is Lawrence Coletti, and I'm the host for today's show, which is being recorded on location at the 2019 ABA Annual Meeting in San Francisco, California. Joining me now, I have a panel of guests talking about a subject very exciting to me. I like space, and I'm not necessarily a fan of contracts. So we're going to put them together, and I think it's going to be good. So the CLE that we're talking about here is the intersection of the space industry and government contracts. And of course, that is sponsored by the ABA Section of Public Contract Law. Let me introduce my panel of guests, and I'm going to start over to my left here. I have Danny Cook. He was the moderator, and uh, welcome to the show, Danny. Thank you very much, Lawrence. And I have uh, Sean Cheadle. Did I pronounce your last name correctly? Cheadle. Cheadle. Sean Cheadle. Welcome to the show. Sorry about mispronouncing your name. And I have uh, Kelly Hook. Welcome. Thanks. And I have uh, Sumera Thompson-King. Welcome to the show. Thank you. And I have Skip Smith. Welcome. Thanks. All right, so we're going to go around the table here. I don't want to just get your bio information before we get started, kind of give the audience some context as to your expertise. So uh, where we started, we'll start back with Danny. I'm a government contracts attorney at the law firm of DLA Piper in Washington, D.C. In that capacity, I represent uh, both large and small contractors in the defense and civilian space, including a number of contractors that work uh, in the space industry. All right, and Sean? Hi, I'm Sean Cheadle, General Counsel of Operations at Lockheed Martin Space. I've been with Lockheed for a dozen years in satellite programs, dealing with the government contracts by day and litigation and a whole bunch of other stuff General Counsel do by night. All right, over to Kelly. Yes, I'm Kelly Hook, and I used to be in the Army JAG Corps. I actually retired after 20 years of service, and during my time in the JAG Corps, amongst other things, I practiced government contract law, both in administration, formation, and litigation. But interestingly, for this discussion, one of my duty stations was at U.S. Strategic Command. It's a four-star command, and at the time I was there, it was in charge of cyberspace and the nuclear enterprise. And so while I was there, I was the targeting attorney, and in that targeting capacity, sometimes we'd make war plans and discuss space targets. And so law of armed conflict and the treaties and what it means to have space operations. Excellent, excellent. And Samara? Good afternoon. I'm Samara Thompson-King, and I'm the general counsel at NASA. I've been working in the government contracts area for over 30 years. I am a big fan of your work. Thanks. Excellent. And Skip? Skip Smith. I'm with Sherman and Howard, a Denver-based law firm. My background is uh, some government contracts, but heavy in the space law. I have a doctorate in space law. Was chief of space law for the Air Force, and now I'm uh, the head of our space law practice group at Sherman and Howard. Excellent, excellent. So, you know, to get this uh, interview started, we're covering uh, space, we're covering government contracts, and so obviously I didn't want to make this into rocket science, uh, no pun intended, and so I needed some help with the 50,000 foot to kind of go over the the general here. So, Danny, I'm going to turn to you, if you could kind of uh, review what this discussion was about and kind of give us a little bit of a roadmap. Sure, and uh, I don't know if 50,000 is the right measurement, but that's okay, um, (laughs) since we're talking about space. Where are we? Where is the official (laughs) space line? Is it like in the 70s or 80s? Skip would tell you that uh, that's a complicated uh, question. Okay. Um, so uh, the, the U.S. federal government has had um, interest in space uh, for, for a number of years, both uh, scientific 
uh, military, and um, there's also increasingly commercial interest in space. The U.S. government has utilized contractors uh, for its operations in space in a number of capacities, and so the panel um, discussed the ways in which uh, the U.S. government works with contractors, how contractors are engaged, and some of the risks that contractors face when operating in space as opposed to on the ground. Excellent. And so we're going to try to bite this off in chunks. And so I understand there was a component that talked about uh, regular contract work versus uh, space contract work. To that, I'm going to turn to Kelly. Okay, so think about contracting in space as a layered cake, like a wedding cake. So when you were in law school, you took contracts as one of your first classes, one L year, and you learned about offer and consideration and acceptance. And so you have your basic contract principles, and you still have those with government contracting and, of course, with space. But you don't have the UCC, and you have the next layer would be your federal contract regulations and rules and laws. So mostly you'd start with the FAR, the Federal Acquisition Regulation, but then you have supplemental regulations for each agency that does federal contracting. So for the Department of Defense, you have the DFARS, the Defense Federal Acquisition Regulation. NASA has its own supplement. and additional authorities. And so whenever you're contracting, you've got your normal contract law, you've got your FAR or whatever other statutory authority for government contracts. And then your third tier would be all the laws and treaties that deal with space and other regulations that from the FCC, from Department of Commerce and other things. So when you're talking about space contracting, you're talking about contracts, extra regulations per agency, and then the nuance of space. All right, so uh, thank you so much for that uh, explanation there, Kelly. And so I, we're going to take the evolution and we're going to go uh, build upon what you were just talking about, and we're going to turn to the art of NASA contracting. And to that, I'm going to turn to Samara. So at NASA, we have been entering into contracts for all of the work that we need to have done in order to have a space program. So when NASA was started 60 years ago, we had to build buildings, we had to build rockets, and we would contract for that using the procedures that Kelly outlined. Uh, we would hire contractors. NASA did not build the rockets, did not build Apollo, Gemini, or the space shuttle. We had contractors in the private sector to build that for us. What has evolved is that NASA now is looking for services, not so much the hardware to launch into space, but to go to the private sector and, and ask them, do you have a vehicle that we can use and we'll contract with you for services? Uh, and so we are doing more of that. We're also looking to partner with uh, folks in the private sector and even international partners uh, to work on space activities. So we have broadened our involvement with folks using lots of different vehicles, instruments for uh, entering into agreements with folks to do space work. Well, that's a great segue to the private sector part of our conversation, and I'm going to look over at Sean for that part of it. Sure, and I would say when Samara says vehicle, uh, we just don't go to our garage and pull out the Jetsons flying car, right? These are uh, very complex, complicated vehicles that have to withstand the elements of space, whether it's protecting an atmosphere inside a vehicle for human travel or withstanding the power of the sun and the radiation that's pummeling them and putting them through various uh, temperature ranges. And so the components and the, the vehicles that are designed for space 
are really complex. And then, of course, they're done under these contracts that Kelly's talking about that are highly regulated. So we have a lot of requirements, technical requirements, contractual requirements, and, um, and a lot of risk uh, because as soon as you launch, you can't go get it back and you have to, it has to work, right? Absolutely has to work. So it's an amazing industry to be a part of um, from the private sector. But there's this notion too that, well, it could be a government funded vehicle or it could be a private vehicle uh, that perhaps we have uh, designed under R&D funds and then sell to the government or use in the service contracts that Samara is talking about. So, uh, Sean, just a quick follow-up on, uh, you know, the, the private side of things. You know, y- if you're a vendor and you've got this wonderful product that the government's interested in utilizing in the space program, maybe it's a brand new looter something. Uh, I understand we're going to be going back to the moon and you're entirely in the private sector. You've never worked with a government body before. Just in terms of timeline, I know this is a lengthy process. What can a new vendor that's never worked with the government before expect in terms of a timeline setting up a contract? So there are new contract formats that are somewhat brand new to several agencies right now, but NASA has been using since the late 50s, and they're called other transactions, or to some agencies, other transactional authorities. Small prototype. When I say small, you know, less than $100 million contracts, which are designed to help new entrants overcome some of the barriers in the federal regulations. And we're seeing a, a ton of new entrants from that perspective, not just companies that are doing launch vehicles or what have you or are owned by billionaires, but their new entrance in just box work, the prototype of propulsion or the electronic boxes that are so important to the vehicles, the space vehicles. So it's really incredible to see the opportunity. But then when the real production contracts come, some of these companies are having to learn what it's like to be a prime contractor, right? Or partner with a prime contractor because of the regulations Kelly spoke to. Lawrence, to follow up on uh, Sean's comment, this is one of the most interesting um, aspects of the intersection of government contracting and the space industry because there's this tension between encouraging uh, new uh, innovative commercial companies to enter into the marketplace and provide uh, products and services to the government and then um, the government's incentive to protect itself and taxpayer dollars through regulating the contracting process. And so lawyers that operate in this space are are seeing through a variety of acquisition reform initiatives and and the use of um, OTA agreements um, and other other devices, efforts to sort of get over that tension um, by making it easier for companies to get in but also protect the government. So who's better at throwing who under the bus? Is the private sector better at throwing the government under the bus or vice versa? Government's better. Government's better? (laughs) I I suspected as much. I suspected as much. (laughs) Sorry, Sumera. So uh, building on that really interesting thing, I I asked this question. I wasn't sure it was going to be a good question, but I guess it did find some ears here. But uh, as time has gone on and NASA's uh, developed and and we're we're bringing again uh, some pretty advanced technologies coming from the private sector, and they're doing work for NASA. And obviously, that since we first started uh, our, our space program, there's been a lot more in terms of international treaties. There's new space treaties. And so how does it work when you have a private sector entity doing some work for the government? Do those treaties apply? And uh, I think I want to hand this one to Skip. Uh, sure. Uh, the key international treaty would be the Outer Space Treaty. There's a number of other words that 
came out of the UN and the Outer Space Treaty has 105 nations around the world that have, are parties to that treaty. And it, it's usually called the Principles Treaty because it sets broad general principles applicable to the use and exploration of outer space, including commercial use. Article 1 says outer space is free for use by all countries. Article 2 says you can't appropriate outer space. There's a little bit of tension between those two, uh, but number one is freedom of use. Article 6 talks about companies and entities can perform commercial activities in outer space, but governments have to provide authorization and continuing supervision. So in the United States and most many other countries that are spacefaring nations, that's done through a, a regulatory regime. In the United States, the most important one would be the Commercial Space Launch Act. We have the FAA, Office of Commercial Space Transportation, really being the regulatory authority for that. They evaluate safety, they do payload reviews, and they do financial responsibility, which is, uh, means companies that are launching satellites need to provide appropriate levels of insurance and things like that. There's some levels of government indemnity on top of that as well. But that's, that's, it's, a, it's a broad international regime that allows commercial activities. It just wants nations to authorize and supervise, and therefore you have national space laws. So uh, who's responsible for giving Elon Musk a ticket for dumping his Tesla in space? Nobody's going to give him a ticket because that's one of the coolest things ever <laughs> to happen in space. And, and I think the, uh, what was it, the star man that they called him in there? Yeah, that's cool that that's out there. If there's any aliens out there and they see that, they're going to say, those guys on Earth, they're cool. We're going to leave them alone. <laughs> All right, I guess we'll have to leave it there for now. We're running out of time, but I want to thank everybody for stopping by. But before we sign off, I want to give everybody an opportunity to leave some contact information for our listeners if they want to reach out and learn a little bit more about uh, about this, uh, what they heard on the podcast, and about what you all do. So let's uh, let's start with Danny first. So uh, you can go to the, the good old Google box and put my name in, uh, Daniel Cook, and uh, DLA Piper's uh, webpage will come up, and, and feel free to contact me by email. All right, Sean. Find me on LinkedIn. Sean Cheadle, C-H-E-A-D-L-E. Kelly. I also can be found on LinkedIn, K-E-L-L-I-H-O-O-K-E. So both unusual spellings. I'm the only one out there. Sumera. Look for me on nasa.gov and also look for our return to the moon in 2024. I'm a big fan. I uh, tweeted that out as soon as I heard about it. So very excited to see that. And uh, Skip. If you go to the Sherman and Howard website and search for Smith, there's only a few of us, but look for Milton Smith, my real name. Excellent. Well, thank you all for joining us. And also thank you to our listeners for tuning in because without you, we wouldn't have a show. And if you like what you heard today, please rate us an Apple podcast, Google podcast, or best yet your favorite podcasting app. Until next time, I'm Lawrence Coletti signing off from the ABA annual meeting here in San Francisco, California. Thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.